0: coming to you from the lab where they talk about guns, gear, training and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Keith, and this is The Gun Experiment.
1: How's it going everybody and welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week Keith and I talk to the founder and head instructor for Rogue Methods, discuss close contact gunfighting and how to properly prepare for physically demanding courses. I want to remind everyone that we release new content every Tuesday morning, so be sure to subscribe and share the show with friends. This episode is brought to you by Target Sports USA. Be sure to check out their ammo membership, which gets you 8% off, free shipping on all ammo orders, and a whole lot more, all for $95 a year. If you'd like to sign up or purchase ammo, please go to TargetSportsUSA.com forward slash The Gun Experiment. And as always, I cannot start the show without the big man across the table, my co-host, Big Keith is in the house. Keith, how are we doing? Doing good. What? How are uh, How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I saw something today that nine millimeter ammo is down to like twenty five cents a round in bulk. Pretty exciting. I was like, cool. Maybe some normalcy in the gun is, industry. Uh, was that at our uh, friends' target sports? Uh, I don't remember. I got an email, so it's very possible. Yeah, if it was an email, probably. Yeah, probably was them. Twenty two league is starting up this week. Yep. You're not. You're not. I'm you're not. Gonna, you're not coming. But up. I am going to go to the uh, neighborhood twenty two shoot. That's coming up soon too. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought you were talking about. Yeah.
0: No. Uh, I I'm gonna. I think, uh, by next year, the kids are going to do it with me. Oh yeah. I took them out and, uh, I think I told you, I, I had bought them a cricket a long time ago. Yeah. I just had not given it to him. Yeah. So I gave it to him over Christmas and, uh, I took them out and, uh, my daughter was, you know, killing it offhand. My son was being lazy and bench resting it. And, <laughs> uh, I was giving him a hard time. I was like, man, your sister's shooting better than you
1: offhand. <laughs> Maybe he's me a long range guy. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> A couple things here. First off, for those out there listening, ways you can support the show. There's a whole list of them, but let's highlight this one right here. I'd like you to go out there and follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We have links in the show notes uh, along with all the other ways you can support the show, but we are growing our small following and we're starting to get uh, nice conversations going on Discord and things like that. Yeah, so that's
0: been a blast. I've, I've I've actually enjoyed it. I hate to say it because I'm not a social media guy, but it's just a,
1: you know it is it's it's your people kind of a thing. You know. It's, yeah, it's, and and like we're in it's
0: our Discord page, yes. and like we're controlling who's in there and who's not. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Not that we've kicked anybody
0: out. No. No. <laughs> no. We had a we had a borderline one. Yeah. Once,
1: but uh, we do have a comment and review. We have a five star review from Esta Esteban. Uh, Ooh. yeah, he said, uh, my favorite two a podcast, looking forward to Tuesday every week, keep up the good work. And what I love about that is that's the second time in a week that someone has reached out in some way, shape or form and said that they love Tuesday mornings. They yeah. look forward to Tuesday morning. So that really made my day, you know, that's that cool. we're, we're able yeah. to kind of make someone's Tuesday kind of something to look forward to. So we're gonna get into this thing, but before we do tonight's interview is brought to you by Flatline Fiber Co., Flatline creates quality sewn goods for the firearms community. Whether you're looking for a new sling or maybe some ear pro wraps to make range sessions more comfortable, they've got you covered. All products are made by hand in the USA, include free shipping and have a lifetime warranty. Use the discount code gun experiment 10 at checkout to get 10% off. And of course, thank you for supporting the companies that support our show. And thank you. Esteban for the review. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate it. Today's guest is an army veteran and former Chicago police officer. He would eventually go on to create Rogue Methods, a training outfit that, put quite simply, helps to make law enforcement officers and civilians harder to kill. Please welcome Raul Martinez to the show. Raul, how are we doing? Good, good. Good. So, uh, first off, I want to uh, thank you for your service. I know you served in the Army and uh, also were a uh, law enforcement officer. So, f- thank you for your uh, service to your country and your community. I think that's awesome.
2: Thank you probably the coolest thing I could have done uh in return of the the awesome amenities that the country's provided me and my family so just doing my part
0: when you when you decided to enter law enforcement you know how how did you get into undercover narcotics i you know i imagine you know there were some good and bad stories of your time undercover but what what made you get there
2: so Growing up, I was kind of uh, not one of the best kids, so I was already familiar with that kind of world, the <laughs> the underground world. You had some street so cred? When I did. I had a little bit, you know, uh, a <laughs> few bruises, knew the right people at the right places most of the time. Um, but just being loyal and honest with people helps in certain businesses. So sure. uh, I was familiar with, with the way that enterprise work. And so once I was in, in, the i the Chicago police department, you have to go through a bunch of little things, right? Like getting over probation and then seeing where you're going to be assigned. And then finally starting to look to what unit you're going to go to. So I, I was talking to one of the old timers and he's like, yeah, I know somebody over here and it piqued my interest. I was like, you know what, let them know about, uh, my background and what I've done. And man, that, that's, that was the quickest way is, is to put your name in front of people. And, not long after, I mean, I was right off probation, went straight to the narcotics unit. And to me, narcotics made more sense because I got to go grow a beard, street clothes, yeah, yeah, easy mannerisms. I didn't have to go get a pickle suit and put on all this heavy gear that all the guys that usually come out of the military like to do. i was like, dude, I wore all this shit already. I don't want to wear it anymore. So I stopped uh, that whole mentality of big SWAT gear and helmets. And I went the street route. And that was in... Um, Jordan and shorts and flip flops and a pistol in my in my pocket. So, wow. uh, narcotics was a lot of fun. It was it was a different animal for sure.
0: Can can you share a story or two that's most memorable from your time being undercover? Obviously, I'm sure you have to leave some names out, but just something to kind of get us a little excited.
2: Yeah, for sure. There was man, there was a ton of them. Uh, <laughs> everything from from getting punched by. Other officers who didn't know you were a cop because oh, they just show shit.
3: up
2: <laughs> and you're wearing regular clothes, to and it was in the back of the head. They thought I was fighting with one of the other cops, and it was in this little tiny, so, oh man, these houses are shitty. And can we swear on this show? Yeah, I'm not trying to. Swear, no, no, no I, no. I don't want to lose one or two words here. And I, I'll keep it super mild.
0: But... Yeah, yeah. If it's natural, go <laughs> for it.
2: Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, no, nothing crazy just, just to say it. I, I hear I feel that the same way about, about swearing. So. We're in this small room, and they have so these apart. It's a it's an apartment building with a a basement that goes. I mean, like all basements, it goes up and or down and under the building. But they have laundry rooms down there, mm-hmm. and this one was particularly small, and, <laughs> it, and you could fit three guys in it. And then there was a crawl space above, and one of the bad dudes went up in the crawl space, so we pulled him down, and there was a uniform guy. Uh, and two non-uniform guys, and then the you know, other guy's partner comes running in and he starts hitting us because he thought we were the bad guys <laughs> um, with him. And we're like, dude, chill, chill. We're on the same team. Um, we're getting punched by this dude. We just move him. We handle that. Um, that's one of the funny ones, that like you end up getting punched by your own people, which is hilarious. It happens. Uh, at least nobody got shot, which is great. Yeah, dude, it's, great.
1: yeah it's a good day at um, the office, right? Other
2: times, yeah, other times it's like chasing people. Uh, I remember this one time. It was fun. We got made. And by made, it's not like the movies were like, oh, no, everyone's, you know, they figured who you guys all are. Uh, Sometimes guys just get spooked, even though they don't know you're the police. Okay. And uh, one of our cars came in too soon for this. And sometimes you do buy bus. So you do it right then and there. You make the buy. And then the buy officer goes away. And then the uh enforcement team comes in and just snatches the guy who sold the bill. right? Right, right. So it's pretty quick. It's like an in and out kind of deal. They're but they're actually, walking
0: yeah. they're walking away, thinking away they made a smooth sale and as they're kinda walking away from it, then they're going down.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so this one was he it was like the hand to hand was about to happen and he saw the car turn and we're like, damn it, we turned too early. <laughs> so uh, he took took his stuff back and he started running and he's like, I knew you were the police. And so I jumped out and I'm chasing him. I'm, like three I'm three or four cars uh, in length from when it all happened from the corner. So he, he's got a good, uh, I want to say 25, 30 yards on me. He's fast, little guy. And there's a corner. And usually when there's corners on our end, we have to slow down and take the corner carefully, right? You don't just want to turn a corner and right. then you don't know what what's behind that corner. But then what happens is, so if we're looking at a quarter of a block, right? So the shorts, it's maybe like I said, it's 30, 40 yards. I, I go, I hit that corner. He hits the corner before me. So I have to slow down. I take a corner wide. By the time I look down, he's, he's turning again, 30 yards down to a little alleyway. So here we go. Boom, well, we speed up and he's still yelling like, yeah, I knew you were the police. You can't get me. I already know. I already <laughs> called you guys out. It's like, well, he's too late. We have every document. like we're going to catch you. Even if it just, it goes from uh attempt delivery or, delivery to a possession charge essentially is yeah. what we could still probably book them for the, the the attempt delivery. Um, but it would be a possession. If anything, it gets kicked down to something small, but we turn the corner and chasing him, And I remember seeing him look at me, stop because he's tired and everybody <laughs> for some reason just stops and looks at you when they're tired and they make a decision. Am I going to fight? Am I going to continue to run? Am I going to do something weird? Uh yeah, exactly, and he just, he looks at me, and I'm still coming, like, a full charge, right? I'm coming at him, and I look at him, I'm like, dude, just get on the ground. And, and I, as I'm closing, he turns around and makes a decision to keep running, which is hilarious. <laughs> he, as he turns, I'm already on top of him, like, I can barely, I could almost touch him. And he turns into a gangway, which he didn't look into previously, right? And he had something in his hand, uh, it wasn't anything like a weapon or anything like that, but it was just a balled-up dope. And when he turned, there was a giant fence no more than, like, six feet into that gangway. So he runs into the fence, chucks the dope over, and then I just tackle him from behind, right? A little mini suplex to the ground. He's <laughs> laughing. He thinks, and I, I was laughing, too, because this is awesome for me, right? Which right, This is yeah. what we do. And uh except blowing your cover, which we try not to do. <laughs> but it happens. So he takes his.
0: Everybody else on the block around, you saw you running after this yeah. guy. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, needless to say, we didn't go back there to do any work for the next, you know, three weeks. Yeah. Like, oh, that's it, let everybody forget about who we were. So I, I get him down, I get him tough, and he's laughing, and I'm like, dude, why are you laughing? And he's like, I don't know, because you got nothing on me. I was like, I saw you throw it. Like, I'm the witness that's saying I saw you throw He's like, I didn't throw it. I was like, you want to bet you through that? And I go over there, I get it, it's the exact then the other officer comes and he identifies that that's what he was gonna buy. So then we tie it all together. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But those those are those little funny things where the criminals are kind of cool. I'm not I'm not gonna glorify the criminal side, but or, or, or humanize them too much because they are kind of bad dudes and they do harm to the community, but they, they they are fun to engage with when they know the drill. When they know, oh you got me? Good.
1: There's a reason why you kind of want to root for the bad guy in the movies, right? Like, there's there's a reason why there's some charm there for sure.
2: Absolutely, and you know, look, this is how they chose to do to make their living. Unlike other folks, they chose this path, and it's one of those things where I'm not mad at you. This is the game. You run, I try to catch you. If you get away, awesome. If you don't, well, this is what happens when you don't when you don't get get away. So, and they know that, and they respect that. Uh, Crime with some types of people is different than others so like let's say if they're enforcers they'll fight they'll try to shoot they'll try to grab your gun they'll try to do a little bit more risque business than that the other guys they're more like they're more business and they want to just get paid they're not there to fight they don't want they definitely don't want to get shot or beat up so uh, they run until they're tired they give up they get put in cups and then they call it a day the other guys that stand there look you toe-to-toe to go toe-to-toe that's like all right this is but we got to
0: do it. I'd assume the, the guys that are higher up on the food chain are the guys that are, uh, you know, probably have more to lose. And and those are the guys that probably want to fight a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So twofold, either they're, they're, they're higher up or they just, they're just there for the business. They don't need street cred. They don't need to be like, Oh, I fought off these 10 dudes and right. you know, people hear about it. And then there are the dudes that are trying to make a name for themselves. So they won't be mad about getting caught. They'll just be like, all right, this is what we're going to do. I fought off three dudes or four. And uh, it's depending on what they want to do with their careers, right? Some guys just want to make money, go get processed, come out, and then go right back to to making money. And other dudes want to get credit because maybe they have uh, a few strikes. And now this last one, and this is another thing that sometimes we don't know when we're, when we're making a stop or when we were making stops on people, is this could be the dude's third strike. So he's going to do everything in his power to get away. Sure. Or strike, and he's not going to give a shit about going in and coming right back out. So he just, it was always a wild card.
0: Well, everybody wants to be Tony Montana in some way, shape, or form. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, So <laughs> pr- prior to starting Rogue Methods, um, you were in charge of training at Fieldcraft Survival. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, how, how much of that has kind of shaped, you know, Rogue Methods and where you are today?
2: So that was probably one of the coolest experiences in the the private sector. I was already teaching. I had already built programs. I had already hired and kind of looked through what it takes to, to bring in and cultivate good instructors, uh, while I was still teaching for the police department and then, uh, for the military as well. But on the private side that was that was a time where it was like well let's put all this theory things that worked with government money and let's see if it works in the private market and it was a, it was a cool adventure because when i had met mike his first kind of deal was like hey man this is a hard thing to do because everybody wants to see me and on the the face of the company. I was like, ah, don't worry about it. No matter how long it takes, we'll make the training division work and I'll make sure of it myself. And he trusted me with the brand name. And then I took the company from what the company was making when I met them in training, maybe 10,000 a month to something silly like 150,000 a month. So I applied a little bit of business strategy with hiring strategy, with cultivating a good environment for people to want to be a part of what we were doing. And then it all made sense to continue to do that with Rogue methods, and that's what Rogue methods is now—a steel-tested, strong entity that isn't that's not only backed by trials in the private markets, uh, but also in the public ones. So that's where we are today. What was yeah.
0: was Mike excited when you uh, when you wanted to kind of start your own deal? Excited for you anyway. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, we we <laughs> we were both pretty pumped about the idea, and it was it was a good sidelining project for a little while and then it just it grew too much and it needed to be its own thing so we shook hands parted ways and rogue methods
1: took off yeah that's good so speaking of rogue methods one of the areas of instruction that you specialize in is close contact gunfighting and your two day course culminates in live grappling, clinch work, and sim munitions. So we we're gonna talk more about that in detail later on in the show, but I've seen videos of guys and girls rolling around in dirt, concrete, gravel, you know, mud. How do you strike the balance between good hard training? And like everybody wants to kind of get put through the ringer a bit and make sure that, you know, you kind of wanna battle harden and, and test your yourself under as good of conditions as you can that might be as close to realistic as you can. But how do you balance that and injury inducing training, right? Like you want to make sure guys go home and they can like go do their day job the next day. How do you kind of balance that out?
2: So one it's, it's the way that we, the way that I get people to train is, is it's pretty tough, right? And it looks monstrous and guys rolling around in gravel and everybody's like beaten up and tore apart but so that's a little snippet of maybe nine minutes of a two-day event where you get to roll around and fight so nastily on the dirt and, and the gravel and like you said in every kind of terrain that we can find um, but to reduce the risk of injury a lot of it go, is, is built off of proper team training so people taking care of themselves and this is something that I I played with the the most when it came to training uh, partnered pair officers or team-based activities for military dudes. And I just now adapted it to the public. So the moment you two people meet, let's say um, you two had never met before and you're in the class, I'm prioritizing you guys taking care of each other. I'm prioritizing you giving a shit about how healthy he's going to be at the end of this how much we can push the other person so that they don't get injured. We go through a series of range of motion exercises. I teach people how to connect themselves with their fail points. So if they feel like they're reaching that fail point, they tell their partner, hey, I need I need a break. I need to stop or hey this is going wrong. And then we we halt it. We don't let anybody push anybody into breaking points. We keep them right on that cusp and then we bring them right back in, reset and then we go again. Uh, but it's a fine balance where by the by the time you leave day one, you care so much about the person you're training with that you would rather stop and almost like fall fl- flat out on your face than do something to hurt the other person. And that's what we're really known for is in cultivating that team environment. But each individual comes to, to build themselves up and test their own metal.
1: That's great. I mean, I know. So when you're dealing with new grapplers, uh, people who haven't done, that type of, what's that?
0: (laughs) Or uh, people who haven't done it ever like me. Yeah.
1: (laughs) A very common phrase in that world is, uh, is like spazzing, you know, and, and, and being spazzy as a, as a new grappler or, or a new guy to clinch work. Do you find that to be the case? Do you see a lot of spazzing where guys are, you know, they're flailing and they're really trying to, you know, get out of situations and they're just throwing hands every which way. Do you see that a lot in the courses?
2: We see it a lot, uh, but it's something that I want to see. I want to see it with people that haven't, like you guys mentioned, if they've never done any of this, they're going to be spazzy no matter what. Right. So what I do is I, I allow it to happen in a controlled setting, and then I stop them, and then we have a conversation about why they're doing that. And then they're like, oh, man, it's because my cardio sucks. Or, oh, man, it's because I've never been hit before. Oh, man, I've never been grabbed by a human before. And then I explain to them that over the course of the two days that we're together, and what's what's awesome is we have like a 35 or 40% return rate, so people want more of it. Uh, But we'll talk about that as we get further. But the idea that they can be spastic, realize that they're doing it, why they're doing it, and then get another chance to not be like that. Right. That's that. That's that secret. Sauce. So I, I let them be spazzy. I stop them. And then I'm like, all right, check it out. This is what this was. Let's do it again. But remember that this is for your this is for you to be better. Don't just try to win this. You're not going to win today anyway. Uh, control, breathe and maneuver the way you imagine yourself doing it. Um, now that you know what it feels like for another man to manhandle you a little bit yeah. or maybe punch you because you've never been punched before. Or maybe you reach a red line. A lot of, a lot of what we see is people will max out their cardio,
3: yeah.
2: um, whether it's breathing or just like a lack of grabbing onto other things. Because one thing, like you can't really train for this. You can get your cardio right. Um, you can get your breathing dialed in. But once you go hands-on with another person, it's kind of – it's a guessing game to where they're going to take your energy levels or shift your balance. So it's so much mental and physical fatigue. And that's really what, what people um, have the biggest, not hard time, because it's not a hard time, it's manageable. We've had everything from soccer moms to overweight dudes that are like, man, this is a wake-up call. I'm going to go be in shape. Uh, but the spazziness gets handled by doing just that, letting them spaz out, explaining to them what happened. And it's, all, it's a giant learning point mm-hmm. for all the other people watching because then they're like, oh, shit, that dude did spaz out. I wonder if I'm going to spaz out. And now they're actually <laughs> processing that moment. And they're like, I don't want to be that fucking guy. Even though we do it in like a, a friendly uh, self-development kind of way. Uh, a friendly uh,
0: competition, it, right? You just want to be better than
1: that guy. 100%. Yeah, we want to survive. Right? In like, oh, in this let case, let me not do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So as you're going down this path in life, you know, into military, law enforcement, survival, and then firearms training, you know, where did that come from? Uh, were those, you know, all areas of your upbringing? I know you kind of talked a little bit about having, you know, you weren't the best of kids, but like, did that play a role? Did, did you know, what, what was that like? What, what were you like when it, when you were a kid when you weren't the best? And is that kind of what ended you ended up steering you into this path?
2: Ability to communicate well with people has been there since I was a kid, whether it was doing bad things and communicating or good things and communicating, yeah. it all
0: got, got you out of some trouble sometimes?
2: <laughs> absolutely. And I was like, this is valuable. Learning how to communicate to people, um, a desired message is a very, very key element to surviving uh, the streets and anywhere else you might be. So. Uh, yeah, everything from being a kid to chucking guns into the lake as a thirteen-year-old kid because <laughs> I made it to the lake before the cop could catch me, and there goes that piece, and he'll never get it out of the out of the lake or out of the river. Um, to seeing guns fall and other guys pick them up, like, dude, that's not good. All right, let's get over here. Let's do this, and and wrestling over things, and you know, jujitsu forever. I think I started jujitsu in two thousand one. Oh wow! So.
0: Mike, Mike yeah, just got excited.
2: Uh, a long time ago. Uh, Pete the Greek was one of my first long term instructors and then uh, kind of just on and off for a few years and then back to it and then on and off and back to it. But I've always used that background to control um, the positions, right? And, and what's beautiful about what's happening now is everything feeds off of the principle. So it's not like this giant new formula for training with guns. It's still elbows tight. It's still everything small and short unless it needs to be long. And it's beautiful in the sense that all the principles can carry over from the first day I stepped on the mat to now to even blending other styles. Like MMA is actually more closely related to what we're doing than any grappling in its in, in its own little way. I yeah, so think MMA has more of an influence.
0: There's not there can't be too many trainers that can say they've been involved in this type of stuff as long as you had. Like you were involved in it in maybe not the most traditional sense when you were a kid, right? And then you end up going into military, and then you end up going into law enforcement. You know what I'm saying? So you've kind of had all the aspects from yeah. good and bad. Yeah, it's true.
2: Yeah. And it only made sense to, like, well, why not train for it? And there has been guys uh, that I feel like they're more singular paths. They're more like the good guys. They wanted to be cops. Correct,
0: Correct. Be cops Like Mike Glover. Uh, like, we'll I, say, like, I don't know that he was a bad kid.
1: I don't know. I, I mean, right. I don't know his background.
0: You probably know his background, but, I mean, he was probably a good or, kid.
2: Or even people who, who are also in this, like, weapons and grappling and force-on-force, force, um, gameplay that that's out there. Cause there's only about four big names and they all have their own little backgrounds. But from what I've gathered, uh, they, they all wanted to be cops. They grew up straight and narrow. They might've yeah. done some cool stuff once they were in, but man, I grew up on the wrong side of everything. I never wanted to be a cop. I joined the military. Cause it was better continue to be a shit bag. Yep. And, um, uh, good choice. Once I became, and the way I became a cop was I was actually working contracts in Australia. And I was dating a cop in Chicago and she had all my paperwork and she took all my paperwork, <laughs> submitted an application, and then I got hired.
0: Get out of town.
2: So I, I never even applied for it myself. Like it was never a personal desire, but that's, I think, why be, I, I was a good cop. I wasn't there to prove anything. I didn't want to make a name for myself. I just wanted to be on the street doing cool shit, changing clothes and jumping in different cars every day and trying to catch dudes that were who thought they were smarter than me. So to me, it was a cat and mouse game. It was never holier than now. It was never I'm a good guy, you're a bad guy. It was like, well, this is my role now, and this is your role. Let's see who's better at it. <laughs> she
0: sounds like she was just trying to get you back to Chicago.
1: Yeah,
2: that's exactly what it was. Did it? Work? <laughs> it worked, right? <laughs> it did. Yeah. yeah, it did. yeah. <laughs>
1: so you mentioned a couple of times about uh, just the firearms end of things and. I know from my research that at least you were. I think you still are a proponent of hard target focus over the traditional front sight focus. Can you elaborate on the rationale behind this philosophy? And and I have some thoughts of my own, but I kind of want to hear what you have to say, and then and I'll kind of add my two cents a bit.
2: So a, a lot of it's just like natural instinct. So even when people hunt, and I relate this more to the hunting folks because that's who's more in classes and maybe law enforcement or people using things for self defense. But even when you're hunting and looking through the glass, you're looking at the animal and kind of placing the crosshairs where you need them or they're they're kind of floating where your other eye is focusing to to see what, what the animal is doing. It's the same exact thing when you draw on moving targets. It's the exact same thing when you pull a pistol on somebody and they start running. I'm not looking at my sights, I'm looking at what's moving and I'm keeping the sights blurred but in in this plane that sits between my eyes and what i'm looking at right so i've always been a fan I, i've taught the other way and i trained the other way but this was the way that that made the most sense when it came to having to make decisions quickly i can't make decisions if the target's blurred and only my front side is fucking sharply in focus i needed to see what's in front of me and what's in front of me is what's going to dictate the next decision or the decision after that. So to me, hard target focus, I'm constantly looking at the threat itself or whatever the object might be. The sights are resting exactly behind or exactly on where I want them to be, but they're not in full focus. And at some point, everybody should be able to do this. is you're looking at your target, you refine by bringing your sights, your focus back to the gun, putting things where you want them, and then sending your visual plane right back to the thing that you're, you're aiming at. Uh, I do this, I practice this when I'm driving. So if you can, and you're sitting in a car, right? We're all sitting in a car driving our car. You're looking at the road. There's a giant sheet of fucking glass in front of your face. And nobody thinks to do little things like this training exercise. So while you're driving, imagine this, because you can imagine it. I'm sure you're looking at the road and then you bring your focus back to the glass. And then the the road disappears, right? Can you see that?
3: Yeah, Yeah. of course.
2: Yeah and then you shift it right back to the road. That's how I practice my sight and target training because I can shift focus quickly. But now that you understand how to shift it quickly and pick up the information that you need, that's where I start to explain that, the, or use that methodology for people because it just relates to something they do every day, and now they just have to put it.
0: And it is not natural for everybody. It, I, personally, it is not. It's a lot like shooting shotgun for me, like exactly the way you just described the sights and exactly the way I try to bust clay pigeons is that that same way. And I just I just do that naturally.
1: I feel. What I find interesting. So I years ago I had the chance to train with. Um, NYPDs uh, um range at their range. And back then it was the uh front side focus and they they preached that. They preached that they preached that a lot. And it did make me better, you know, like the focusing on that, like that that one thing, it kind of made a lot of problems disappear, other problems disappear. And what I've noticed over the years is that in terms of like if you're just straight out square range, str- you know, non moving target, no threat, that is a very, very solid technique. But then we go, like, let's talk about law enforcement. There's a lot of these instances where they, you know, they get in a shooting and then it turns out that the guy didn't have a gun. He had a cell phone in his hand, right? Well, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to articulate that you saw a gun or didn't see a gun when you're focused on a piece of plastic on the front of your gun instead of the actual target is what I've always kind of felt. And uh, recently, Raul, uh, both Keith and I have really jumped in with both feet with uh, the proliferate, pro- excuse me, proliferation of red dots. We've both gone to red dots and I really, really like it because it really gets rid of that whole front sight focus, right? You, now you are trained to actually focus on the target and the red dot is just superimposed in the background. So it's amazing how like for years it was like focused on the front sight, but with red dots coming so hot on the scene, now it's exactly the opposite. So it's just interesting. I feel like you—you you definitely had you were onto something even back when I saw you talking about that.
2: Yeah, and, and look, I, I've I've pointed guns at people more than I've had to shoot people, and I picked that up then, and I just related to my experience. I was like, oh, I can't speak to everybody else. This is what I saw, and I needed to see things behind the gun. I needed to, and what's look, just what's funny now about red dots is. The red dot ideology is exactly what we what I've been talking about with this uh, target-focused shooting. Uh, and even the, 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 the highest-level shooters um, for USPSA do something similar, where they're kind of balancing what they're seeing. But it's because the targets are close enough that you can almost Correct. focus on yeah. two things at once. Well, you right. trained with Tim Harry, uh, right? I have trained with Tim and, and AJ Zito, both great uh uh, practical shooters, and they, they talk about this, and Hunter Constantine, he's a grandmaster on, on our team, and uh, these, these dudes talk about how they can float and shift their visual planes because the, the, the target and their sights, they're not far away from each other. Obviously, it doesn't matter if you're shooting an uh, optic, and I think people should start, now that they're so prevalent, people should start on an optic and then train iron sights. They'll so do it in reverse because um, you already are getting the luxury of being able to see a target and see through your gun versus trying to focus on these tiny little squares and then focus on something far away. Uh, I think that should be the the way even law enforcement trains now. Um, the The only thing I will say that for shooting distance with pistols, just irons, you do need a better focus on the gun itself, the sights, right? Then you do the then the target. So the you, there, it, the focus of the target outside of 25 yards is going to be difficult for both your eyes and the sights, right? Correct. So yeah. yep. you you will set your sights first and then look as far as you can to the target, identify what you need to do, and then come back to the sights to take the shot. Yeah. So it's a blend at a distance of what you were talking about, what you saw at the, at the, at the PD ranges, where they're still doing front side focus on the flat ranges but it's super important to be able to do both. And once you do both, you kind of unlock these cool little things in your, in your, in your mind and in your eyes. And you're kind of like, whatever, what I need now is this. And then you give it to yourself. You're not guessing, Oh, do I need front sight this? Or do I need that? Um, once you train enough of both, you know exactly what to do when the time comes.
0: At the end of the day, I think also the other thing we have to keep in mind here that we're talking about is you can't just go to the range, set up a target at seven yards, open the door, and click off rounds the same way every single time and not do different distances, not do different drills cuz that's the only way you're going to train yourself to do what we're what we're talking about here. Yeah.
1: And and also you were talking about the red dot versus the irons and starting with red dot. First of it really lowers the learning curve so much. But what I I was just shooting irons the other day and what I was finding is going from a red dot to an iron is I a couple times I'm missing the target and I'm, I was shooting steel. So I was like, not hearing the clang of the steel. And I realized that my front sight was on the target but my rear sight was a little bit too low or, or the front sight was a little too high. Because yeah, you're on you. focused on just one Because sight. I'm just focusing on the front sight. Yeah. And why is that? Because I'm used to the red dot yeah, now. Yeah. And with the red dot, it's just where it is is where it is. So it really is quite a bit easier to just have one thing to you, focus on. And not to get off
0: of the interview here, but I'm just thinking about it because uh, while well, you were you were shooting iron sight, so there's nothing you can really do, but your Holosun sun does a good job at giving you that different um, uh, different reticle. reticle. Yeah. So you have the big circle and the little circle. And that, that kind of makes up for what you're talking about a little bit, but yeah. again,
2: it makes, no, it makes it makes sense when when you talk about dots that way. And uh, if you do have the ring, use the ring. The ring is going to give you more advantages, yeah. I think, than than just the dot. Uh, but play with all of them, like you, you said. Also, like if you just practice all the little things, no matter what's in front of you, you have a, a potential solution for it or a file for it uh, instead of guessing what's going to happen next.
0: Yeah, that that's that's one thing that I will say. Mike and I both have have probably advanced the most in since we started this podcast is when we go to the range we we both of us have like an a plan of what we're going to shoot that day or what we're going to try to do and it's not just the way it used to be which is what i described earlier <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know like just oh, i'm gonna go shoot today and just shoot at seven yards you know um so i'm yeah. sure you have now at this point seen you know in uh, seen it all in terms of gear and equipment, right? So what should we stay away from while we build up our gear? Like I'm looking for particular, like any snake oil gear that we should avoid or, or things like that.
2: So it, <laughs> to me, gear is one of those things where somebody creates a problem and then they try to sell you a solution that they made for a problem that never existed <laughs> until they made the solution for it. <laughs> right. Um, so to me, a good belt, a good holster, a good blade and a good, Stop gun goes a long way. All oh my God. the guns that I prefer to train with are still. I mean, it's Dawson Precision, blacked out rears, fiber optic red front. I'm not a big uh, red dot guy, so I don't. Ha- I have them on some guns just to, to know them, but I don't carry that. Uh, a strong belt, man, and and a good holster. Honestly, is, is as far as I go into the gear realm, which again plays into my undercover world, where it was all about the most minimal gear possible. And accomplishing the most that
0: I could. Has there been any gear that you've seen through, you know, your experience with training everybody that you were just like, "God damn, that is the that's the worst (laughs) thing I've seen." Like, please don't ever bring that back to my class.
2: I've seen some weird holsters. I was just gonna say, holsters have got to be it, right? Yeah, holsters are the weirdest one.
1: There was a holster out there for a while. It was like it was. It's hard to explain, but it was like a peg that went in the barrel. And then it had, like, the, the one side, the the trigger was covered, but the other side wasn't. And then it just had a clip that you put in. It was, like, very, like, super minimalist.
0: Which side? The outside or the inside? I don't
1: even know. But either way, <laughs> there was, like a, like, a part of your trigger was just not covered. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I can't believe this is a thing. Like, who made this and who's buying it? Like, it was just yeah. terrible. Yeah. So I agree. Holsters are, they can be terrible
2: ulcers are the one, I mean, even mag carriers are kind of weird. I, I'm still very much like a little mag in a pocket. <laughs> uh, talk about minimal. Like, and so then the, the mag in the pocket came, they came out with the Neo mag.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. And to me, it was like, well, there was never a problem with it in my pocket, but here's a solution to a problem that I never thought existed because I carry it in a pocket anyway. Right. Uh, so that, that's how I see a lot of gear. I, uh, every time I see new gear, I'm like, man, dude, somebody's got to be buying it or they wouldn't make it.
0: That's <laughs> true. Yeah. I mean, I carry my extra mag in a pocket too for everyday carry, but you know, I also have a, nice battle belt with extra mag holster you know what i mean so like you kind of oh for sure. you prepare for different things right yeah. you know
1: well and you know what you're you're talking about raul is like uh you know there's there's the product out there and they're in business so people must be buying it you got to remember there's new gun owners every day and they oh, yeah. don't know what they're looking at and i i don't want to like throw out names or anything but i've known people who i'm at a gun show with and they're like a newer gun owner and they're like oh look at that cool like leather holster that doesn't actually hold itself open and i'm going to carry it without a clip on it and that seems awesome and i'm like you have so much to learn <laughs> yeah you know well,
0: good good belt good holster are definitely things you want to uh, have but avoid the uh the i guess the the holster that does it all
1: yeah the 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 ben, you look,
2: look, we can- we can dive into the belt idea just a little bit. Yeah, please. there's a ton of belts out there that are just like these super flimsy, super lightweight, and they're they're good for just hanging on to. But if you're going to carry a belt, it might as well help with other stuff. So these, I brought these leather belts from, from my buddy, and we kind of built the design together. And it's, it's a stout belt. I'm holding one right now as I'm talking to you. I, I saw them. With the, I saw them. They're cool. Airport. Yeah. and But, but the buckle is nice and heavy. So let's say you don't have anything else, and you take this thing off. You got a little whip going with a little <laughs> metal piece that's holding a blade or a bottle or something. Yeah. And now I can start wrecking these guys. You can't really do that with nylon belts. Yep. Uh, and so, or, or belts that are shaped to your waist. So now they're they're, they're in this curved shape. Yeah. So they don't swing well. They don't move well. Uh, but that's why the traditional leather belt, and it's a two layer, so it's really nice and thick but it's got that buckle that, man, I'm sure you guys have seen uh, the Cowboys taking their belt off and swinging their buckles at each oh, other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. So I, I think with a purpose like that are a big deal.
1: Yeah, I knew an old Marine, and he said something like, hey, my mess with me, I'm just taking my belt off and whip him with the buckle. And I was like, <laughs> all right, <laughs> whatever, works, <laughs> whatever, whatever works, man. So your coursework seems pretty intense, but I've read, a, read or listened to account after account of, how you somehow managed to make the classes really a lot of fun. Why is this, A, so important to you as an instructor, and how do you keep such an intense course light and fun and make sure that everyone's kind of enjoying themselves?
2: Yeah, great question, man. I think I don't take myself too seriously in the sense of how I joke and how I I interact with people. Uh, and so it makes it it makes it lighthearted in that sense i take the training very seriously because there's a huge potential for injury if not done well and and that's i think why it's it shies it, it, it makes people shy away from it so there's not a lot of people doing it because of the potential injury and it's not small by any means like there's a risk every time but when i can do the drill with you this is another thing that people don't see often is the instructors doing the drills with the students to show them what it feels like what it looks like and I'm in there grinding it out. I have a busted hands just like everybody else in every class. Some classes I'm more injured than others, but for the most part, I do these rounds with each student so they can feel true energy in a safe environment. So they trust me. One, they're there. They they've already paid top dollar to be in our course. So they trust me with their money, they trust me with their time. And now they're trusting me with their training. And I take that very seriously. So I give them 110% of who I am. I make the coursework lighthearted and fun. Uh, and everything's designed to make each person better, but I get to know everybody. And getting to know everybody, I understand what this guy needs or what she might want or what he's looking for, and I'll cue and tap into those things, and that's what really makes it a unique experience for each individual. But then in turn, when they come together as a team, they realize that they're there to help each other grow. And so that's why not there's not a lot of, a, a lot of injury going on with it, even though it's hardcore coursework. And the fun part is just I blend a little bit of humor with – some seriousness. I'll make some jokes when things get really tense to ease the mood a little bit, and then we go right back into hard, intense training. I mean, we're burning something between 3,500 and 4,500 calories in one training session, outside of whatever your normal burning calorie rate rate is. So it's a high output class. Um, and it demands a lot of your attention, but it's also fun. There's breaks. There's times for you to gather yourself. And I think that's where all of the good feedback from everybody who's taken the course comes from is there are moments to you gather yourself. There are moments to feel good about what you've been accomplishing throughout the day. And and you look back and you're like, shit, I just did all this. And you're grinding it out for for a strong 16, 18-hour um, weekend. So yeah. I, I think that's where it's
1: I can say anytime I've trained with like-minded people and they're doing really good, solid, hard work, there's a bond made, you know, whether you maybe never see those people again or whether you do, you see them on a regular basis. But there's always a bond there when you're doing really good, solid work. And I know one thing you spend a lot of time working on in particular with your courses is firearms retention. And I realize, you you know, you can't cover every detail of this skill set on a podcast, but can you give us some of the maybe a couple of just key concepts of weapon retention that we could then uh, listeners and ourselves could then dive deeper into at an actual rogue methods course.
2: Yeah. So we go through this progression kind of, uh, in a way where we want the person to, to be an adequate holster. You as the human are the holster for the gun, not just the piece of equipment that it comes in or that you've decided to buy and put on your waist. So you as the person need to be able to push people away, keep people from getting to your equipment and, being fast enough to get away and keep uh, keep distance if the distance is going to be the game we play. And we do play that. We play in all the ranges of, of space and distance because people need to understand, like, hey, maybe you're not going to be able to out-wrestle a 400-pound guy, right? He might be better off running because he can't run as fast as you. So we, that's why we play with all the ranges. But weapons retention is, is it's a layered event in our course. And it's everything from making you a more capable person so nobody can get to your stuff And then it's teaching you how to keep it retained if something does get on top of your gun. So there's ways to keep the gun going into 50-50. So to me, 50-50 is this, on a gun. If you have a grip on it and I have a grip on it, it's our gun together. The moment one of us or the other can put two hands on the gun, it becomes that person's gun for the time being. And it usually requires a lot of violence when somebody puts two hands on a gun to get the gun back. So we teach you how to do the violence, how to accept some of that violence, how to return it if you are the one receiving it, and then how to play inside that whole whirlwind of activities from going from you owning the gun to 50-50 to 100 to violence to back out of that violence and then living back into the normal world. So we go through these highs and lows of energies, uh, spikes and adrenaline, and that's also part of the programming that's in there. I want you to get as high up and crazy energized as possible and then come crashing down and then up and down, up and down and give you that emotional intelligence that's going to happen when you need to make a decision or stop yourself from making a decision that could be too far. I don't know if that makes
1: sense, but yeah,
0: no, kind man. of the more familiar you can get with that, those emotions, the yeah. the, the more like the, the more prepared you'll be if you ever find yourself in that. Situation.
1: Yeah, that was an awesome answer. And I, and I really like that you use the words uh, of like, you know, of entering into violence right because we were not talking this isn't this isn't sports uh, grappling this isn't like collegiate wrestling this isn't just square range kind of work like you're what you're really talking about here is uh, entering into a world of violence and what would happen if you had to go down that road with someone in a violent encounter so I really I really I appreciate that answer I think it was really really well done for what you could do on a short amount of time but we, we want to move on to some other stuff but where can people find you what's the best places to look?
2: So I try to be consistent on on, uh, Instagram and post every day on the Rogue Methods page. So it's at Rogue.Methods. And that's kind of where I put out little snippets here and like, hey, this is what you're into. This is what you're going to get yourself into. And they're highlight reels. They're fun reels. They look super intense. They're supposed to look super intense. I mean, social media is designed for marketing more than uh, entertainment, especially Instagram, right? YouTube is more the education side but Instagram is a good place to see kind of what we're doing. You get to know the team, you get to know the product. My personal social media is just me doing random stuff and living life and trying to inspire people to live their lives the way they want. So that's Raul.Martinez.Jr. Either one of those is good. The website is Rogue Dash Methods, simply because I couldn't buy the regular one because nobody—the person who owned it—didn't want to sell it. Um, <laughs> I think it's a rock band somewhere. They—they uh, they saw that I that I do gun stuff, and they're of the non-friendly uh, community, and so they're like, "No, we're not selling you anything." And I was like, "Ah, oh, whatever, keep it. I'll, yeah, I'll keep I'll it." it. That's like Rogue Dash Methods. It is, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, all right, so we want to do Run and Gun with you. It's a 10-question rapid-fire, and you give us the first answer that comes to your mind. It is timed, and there are records, so uh, you could be the title holder if you play your cards right.
2: Damn,
1: okay. <laughs> no pressure. All right, here we go. Number one, what is your favorite gun in your personal collection?
2: Uh, 442.
1: What gun would you buy if money was no object? Bazooka. If you could have a drink with one person living or dead, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. Favorite caliber? 9 mill. Favorite hobby, not gun-related? Swinging. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Flying. All hell breaks loose, is it better to be armed or trained?
2: Trained.
1: Is it better to be loved or feared? Loved. Rifle, pistol, or shotgun? Shotgun. You're in the worst scenario imaginable. Who do you want to have your back other than your spouse?
3: God. Let's mix
1: it up. That was pretty fast. That's pretty good. Uh, good enough to take the number three spot <laughs> away th- from uh, Jim Goon's life. All right. Number three. That's, uh, that's impressive. Awesome. <laughs> Bronze medals, nothing to <laughs> scoff at, my friend. <laughs> 42.43 seconds. Yeah. All right. Not bad. All right. So on this episode of Let's Mix It Up, we discuss close contact gunfighting and preparation for physically demanding classes. But before we do that, Let's Mix It Up is brought to you by Onsite Firearms Training. They have an extensive course offering and teach classes across the country. You're guaranteed to find a course to meet your needs. Just check them out and get trained by the same outfit that trains the gun experiment. I have to tell you, I don't know if you've ever met or if you know Ben DeWalt. He does training around the country. But uh, some of the stuff that I've read about you and your trainings very, very similar, which I, Ben, if you're listening, I have to say when I first met you, I'm like, this guy's pretty full of himself, but man, <laughs> time and time again, you prove me right. You're you, you prove me wrong. Li- I mean, we've grown to like it. Now. Yeah, we, we've grown to like it. So anyway, you're one of your courses, you offer a lot of different courses, uh, everything from like room clearing to sort of more of I I don't say basic pistol, but what you call low profile pistol. Uh, the, the one course that really caught my eye is your two day close contact gunfighters course. You love that stuff. And this is the one we've kind of alluded to a couple times. And I just want to, first I want to go over a real quick synopsis of what this course covers. So it covers, as we mentioned before, firearms retention, shooting from concealment, clinch work, striking, medical consideration, including tourniquet application, and blade work.
0: Don't forget running away from guys that can't keep up with you.
1: That's right. That's my strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So first off, how do you fit all of that I mean, two days is a long time, but still, like, that's a lot. I mean, there's guys that do two days of just medical training, right? And you're throwing, like, all all this stuff.
2: So, again, with with all these years of constantly and being consistent with teaching and training, I've been able to refine and like, really dial in the important pieces that people actually need to hear. So stuff you will never hear in our training are like science words and words that (laughs) correlate with the brain and all this bullshit, bullshit, bullshit that people got to go look up before they even know what you're talking about and they're standing in front of you and you only have them for a limited amount of time. So it, it really is the most simplistic way for me to convey a message to you and get you working, and that's the secret to adult learning. If you want somebody to do something hands-on, you have to give them time to practice it. So I explain it to them really quickly. We go hands-on real, real fast. The the, the first minute of the day, we're doing something, Uh, whether it's it's a a mock situation where I'm like, hey, guys, this is the medical plan. I'm injured. What are we doing together? You give me an answer. You, you, you. Cool, this is what we're doing. We're doing it together. And we just ran through a whole medical scenario before we started the day. Put the gauze in the hole. Yeah, shove it all in there. Yeah. (laughs) But the, the, it, it, There's a formula for teaching people quickly, and that's how I'm able to condense all that information in there. And sometimes we get to touch on all of it. Sometimes we do an overview of a topic that maybe this group didn't need. Let's say it's a group of strong jiu players, so they understand certain things, they understand framing, and they understand angles. So we can skip some, and, and again, from years of teaching, I have so many lesson plans on the same topic, that I can just adjust fire like like a little like a little knob, clanking the knob to what I need, to what's in front of me, just because I've had to teach everything from the from the newest person who doesn't know anything to a seasoned world champion black belt in seven different martial arts and still convey the message to him as it relates to the weapons retention portion of everything. And so luckily for me with the, the, the time and experience of teaching people is I have so much built up that I can quickly adjust to the people in front of me. And I think that's the secret sauce that people are like, man, that is a lot of info. And I'll be like, Hey, this is important for you. Maybe this is not important over here for you. And I can give two lessons simultaneously to two different people in the span of like three minutes.
0: I want to kind of see if we can unpack that just a little bit, because uh, if you haven't gathered, I'm a much bigger guy than Mike. Um, And I, I've, Done well. I've lost some weight over the last year. Uh, lost a little over hundred pounds. But I, <clears throat> I guess my question is: one of the fears that I have when I t- look at courses like this is that I'm going to hold back the rest, the rest of the class. Like, how do you prevent that from happening? How do you make sure that I'm getting as much as I can get out of it, and given my physical capabilities, and not hold back the rest, the rest of the class?
2: There's never. So we've had, and just to give you an example, we've had a person who's never even been punched or grabbed by another grown-up and a seasoned black belt, many medals and championships and all sorts of tournaments under his belt. And they both had a phenomenal experience. And a lot of it is this. I give... So when we partner pair, this is a very important part of this, partner pairing by weight, just like every single world-style martial art competition, you're paired by weight. It's not just like, well, little guy should be able to take big guy. Uh, Maybe, yes, if we're going to be unfair and he's going to stab him in the groin or something, right? then then yes, the disparity is acceptable. But in training, I, I put people together at their weight level, and then I recruit others to help me get that person up to speed. So never will you find yourself in a class of mine where everyone's going to the lowest common denominator to stay there until we can get that person up. What we do is we set a standard. Like, this is the standard. This is what I want done today. This is how we're going to get there. Everybody's going to get there, and you guys are going to help me get these people there so that nobody gets left behind. And we're not playing this uh, cater to the to the weakest link kind of shit. So we just reinforce the link and bring them up to standard. And everybody gets it, and everybody wants to play ball. And by that time, by hour two, people are invested in each other, and nobody's looking at anybody like they're holding them back. Unlike most firearm classes where it's clickish and that guy kind of sucks and he's taking up our time. I've seen it. I've been there. Um, But to us, it it was never going to be like that. So it's a hard class. It's physically demanding. So it's going to be everybody's rooting for the guy midway.
1: And if I could just add to that a little bit. So I think it's important for people to understand. Like a lot of times we hear – Things like, you know, like, you know, jiu-jitsu was meant for to make a smaller guy be able to handle a a much bigger opponent with technique as opposed to using muscle and all this other stuff. But what people don't realize is there's like these multiple layers of levels. Right. So the way I always describe it is you have people of different ages. Right. You have someone in their prime, 23 years old, and then you have someone who's 70 years old, way out of their prime. And then you have Jim
0: Duggan, 70 years
1: old. There you go. (laughs) Then you have physicality, right? Some people are bigger, some people are smaller. Then you have have trained. Some are trained, some are not. So when people talk about like people are trained and that training, what it's doing is it's like balancing out those things. So I use you and I as an example. You don't really train in, Grappling or anything, but I do. You're much bigger than me. I still might. You still might be able to kick my ass, but it's going to level things out. You, my training l- brings your weight down a little bit and gives Equalized, me a fighting like an equalizer. It's an equalizer. Gives me a fighting chance. Just like a first day grappling class, um, super young athletic kid, but he's never grappled against a middle aged guy who's grappled for ten years if that kid grapples for 10 years, he's going to be better every day of the week. Right. So I think wh- why but that, I'm but that first class, they're going to be more equal. They're going to be more equal. Right. And somewhere those things, those power curves well, change. That,
0: that makes sense. And that makes sense to sort of roll what you're saying about how you're kind of sizing up the class and, and, and pairing people up with, with skill sets and, and size wise and to try to make that equalize as much as it is. And it's nice to hear that that's something that you're looking into, you know, and what I really liked about what you said, and, and I, believe this to be true for the most part. and the experiences that I've had with training courses in this industry is that everybody is at these classes to better themselves and everybody is at these classes to be more prepared and you uh, sort of you want you want to help the guy that's lowest on the totem pole, so to speak, get better. And it sounds like that's something that you're sort of instilling in your class that, you know, hey, guys, we're all here together. We're all and girls. We're going to we're going to get each other to the best place we can get at. And I'm going to need your help to get everybody where they need to be.
2: Exactly. and That comes from whoever's leading the program. So if you've gone to programs and that's the vibe, that's the mentality, then those coaches get it and they're invested in the people that are in front of them. Uh, if it's any other any other way than that, it's a little bit too much of a show for, for whoever's leading the program. And people feel that. People know the difference. And the moment somebody feels out of place in a class that not only did they pay money to, but they invested their time in, it, it's one of those things where you can either have a horrible day or have a great day, all depending on how how the class is being led. Um, but, yeah, it, you you build a team from the moment you walk on because you're dealing with guns and lives and people potentially getting injured. You do have live fire. You do have vehicles in the mix. You have people potentially slamming somebody on their head. And if they don't care about each other, they can easily get hurt. But again, if you can cultivate that sense of teamwork and look, you're doing it with strangers, which means you guys came here a group of friends. And I kept the classes at 14. You 14 came here not knowing each other. And now we're all friends and we're willing to go hard with each other. Imagine with what we can do if we can pull out some leadership traits of one of those. And this is why I ask everybody to help me, because I want them to tap into their own personal leadership capabilities so that when they go home, they can talk to their neighbor and then their other neighbor and be like, hey, guys, let's get together and do this. And now they've become the little leader of their pack. Like, that's powerful, right. man. And I think that's what's missing in, in a lot of the American culture now is nobody wants to take uh, that that step into leadership because there's a shit ton of responsibility that comes from it, and in the moment we can help people tap into that, and the moment that they can do that for themselves in their own towns after we've left as coaches, and they're there doing their own thing, man, that's a seed that's going to grow into something super fucking awesome.
1: Yeah, Raul, what I was saying to Keith before about those different power dynamics, do you agree with that? You like you I, you understood what I was what I meant by all that? Like, do you agree that those yeah. factors all that's why you're pairing people up, right? Yes. Well
2: the the weight the weight thing is just because like any UFC fight you've ever seen they they fight in weight classes and it's mostly because of how they're going to be moving
1: each other around. Well, what right? I meant what I meant by that statement, though, I, sorry, I should clarify. I don't want I don't want somebody who's listening to go wait a minute if they put Mike with someone Mike size every time what happens in the real world when he gets in front of a big guy? Well, that's a totally different thing. It's training versus real world, and that's why you train. So your skill set can kind of counterbalance that guy who doesn't train and is bigger than you. That's kind of where I was going with that.
2: Yes. You need to be able to handle the person of your own weight and be skilled and trained before you can start trying to take on somebody else. Exactly. Right? That's why we do weight classes. We get you prepped and ready for somebody capable, somebody similar to you in height and weight and then we can, you can play with that however you want and adapt it to however you want. But for the sake of actual training and learning and programming, you need to do it with somebody roughly your size and weight. Otherwise you're dealing with, like you are saying, a, a really young athletic person and they're smaller in stature, but they're just super athletic and you put them against a bigger guy. And the whole time you're just trying to catch the little guy. Well, the little guy just has to be fast and the other guy's just going to get tired, but nobody learned anything right. other than the fact that he got tired and he's fast. Right, 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 right. <laughs> But there's still development that needs to happen, and in order to learn some of these, these tasks that we were trying to accomplish, you have to spend a little bit of time with somebody that's giving you equal resistance in the sense of body type and size. So it's not like a 105 pound female comes in and she's expected to perform against a death of 350 pound dude. Like right. if you guys want to do that later, we'll orchestrate this for you. But I'm, I'm telling you now, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go with <laughs> any martial art. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter what martial art it is, man. You need things to help you be, you need things to multiply your capabilities. So if you're a smaller person and you're not carrying some sort of tool, you need to, like, it's going right. to help equalize things. Uh, And it's just the real, the reality of the world. No martial art, no amount of training doesn't matter who you are. If somebody's bigger and they can just slow you down enough, they're going to weather whatever little energy you have, little bursts of energy, and either pin you down, and it's it's a shit show. And I've seen some of the strongest dudes get pinned down um, by bigger dudes, and it's it's frustrating. I, I even my my skills are fair. I I trust my abilities, but when I grapple dudes that are just a a 270-pound guy, 270-pound dude, just playfully wrestling. I'm like, God, this is hard, man. I'm like 195, 200 pounds, and I'm trying to move this extra 70. It's not easy, man. And then now you add a little bit of skill, like you were saying, and that's even harder. Um, I like to tell people in training, like, look, the the idea of action beats reaction, it's only true if everything is equal. So action beats reaction if the playing fields are equal. Right, right. There needs to be something that changes that. And so now if I'm better skilled, like we had just talked about, if I'm better skilled, or or let's say you're faster at a draw, um, which means you're more skilled because you practice and I go to draw, I preemptively, I start all of this shit, the shit show, and I'm grabbing my gun, you're like, holy crap, he's pulling out a gun, but you're faster, you're able to get the gun out and put the gun between you and I faster than I can get it out because I'm just this slob that just decides to pull a gun out to be, to to be a jerk in this situation. Right? Um, so action to me doesn't always be reaction unless things are equal. So now we're both trained and I go first, well, guess what? I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the heads up because I'm as good as you are. And I started before you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. This is what,
2: this is why training is so important is we need to be ahead of it because everything comes from an ambush. Nothing where two people are fighting over a weapon stems from a fifty-fifty agreement to fight over a gun. <laughs> Nobody is silly enough to say, "Hey guys, let's fight over this tool." Right, usually, yeah. somebody puts a gun in your face, and you're like, "Holy crap!" But here we go. Or somebody grabs yours, and you're like, "Holy crap!" Or a blade comes out. They're already stabbing you. Um, it, it's all set off of an ambush attack because the other guy doesn't want you to take their stuff either. So he's not going to be like holding a gun right where your hand is and be like, "Hey, give me your, give me, give me your stuff." Where you can grab the hand. That's why they do it in certain angles, and we we address all that. But. Just that's the, that's the thing. It's like we need to understand ambushes. We need to be better at training so that we can counter the ambush as quickly as possible. That's the shit, son.
0: W- walking 20 paces uh, and turning <laughs> around, uh, that, that doesn't happen anymore. No, no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool if it did. <laughs> so I uh, do good. have,
1: I have uh, another question, particularly about the grappling part. And I watched uh, something about a class that you did. And it was mentioned how a lot of guys with uh, prior grappling knowledge, whether it be uh, wrestling or jujitsu or any other type of grappling that <clears throat> a lot of times it didn't go the way those people thought it would go because they're used to basically being on the mats and it being fair and sort of even and no gun play and that kind of stuff. And so for one thing, I, I, I understand that especially if someone is grappling in like sports jujitsu, let's say, uh, and they're doing certain parts of their game that you really wouldn't do in like street defense anywhere. There's certain things in grappling that are really geared towards competition. But taking that out of the equation, are there, how do you adapt prior grappling knowledge to this type of grappling? Like, how do you kind of get that across to people who have prior grappling knowledge? And I'm gonna give you a specific example there's a lot of times where people in your course were pinning their body down, belly down on the gun. And I'm just curious like would do you ever encourage like back takes in those situations where you would, you know, get on someone's back, pull them on top of you and then try to kind of wrestle from there or or is that not at all what you would do?
2: So the, the gun has a incredibly difficult element to grappling. Because if you're not, if, and let's go back to that earlier part where we're talking about how if I have a hand on and you have a hand on, we're 50-50, right? So the moment you go to, to lift the chin or maybe drop some hooks or, or move your hands away from the gun, where's the gun? It's now in the other person's hand. Right. So you can be shot just about anywhere on your body, especially if you drop hooks in and you take them off to your back and you're going for their neck and they, draw the, they, they have the gun and they see your ankle and they blow your ankles out going can be really hard for you to hold a choke with you, both of your ankles just pierced with a, with a nine mil.
3: Right. right. So
2: the, the idea that we can use, and it looks like it and a lot of people are like, Oh, look, he's belly down. I'll just take his back. I'm like, but you have no idea where the gun is. And the right. moment you don't know where the gun is, is the moment you start getting pieced away. And it's part of the program. We teach that belly down as, as part of a defensive portion of the class. Um, as well as a grandiose role, as well as a bunch of other little little gems that, that are unique to what we do with with close contact gunfighter that, that right. really changes the game. Like it's counterintuitive to go belly down, but for a long time, early jujitsu, the turtle position was a defensive position yes. as well as offensive. Sure, it wasn't just oh, this is just take my back, right? That that thing later on.
1: The only thing I would say though is turtle is a little different than belly down. Like you know, what I mean, like technically there there is a difference between the two, right? Like turtle there's a huge you... difference. Yeah. Turtle, you'd be on all fours and it is different, but I know what you're saying. I, I completely understand. And what about yeah. in terms of like if they're belly down and you're the person on top, like sort of using your way to pin their body onto the gun and then striking? Is that something that is taught or, or again, bad idea?
2: Yeah. We're teaching because we're teaching one move. We have to teach the counter, yep. right? And I've never went the route of like, hey, this stuff is this, but there's no counters to it. That's not how we do things with our stuff. Every time we do something that's working really well, we're like, all right, let's spend time breaking this shit apart and finding something to defeat it so that then we can layer that into our training and offer it as part of this. So no matter what we do that works really well, we always find counters to it. So yes, if somebody's belly down and they're not doing anything, they're just squeezing onto the gun and not letting you have it, and you can pin them down and just crush them, and you can do it. Yeah, okay. right. Right? That, that's an option. But what happens when you're punching, and they roll, and now a muzzle's pointing right at your face, and they cook a round off. Right,
1: right, right sure. Well, it's like anything. It's, it's a dynamic situation.
2: It is. It's a very dynamic situation. And so we teach everything from isolation and pinning, to pinning and moving, to turning and finding shots, uh, within that close range and, and all of it gets discussed and, and it gets, it plays out. It, it, we play it out slowly so that everybody can see and make sense of it. And then we start to speed it up and then we start to add pressure and then we start to do it all in one. So speed, pressure, intensity. And then anytime something gets to a point where it's everything we've been drilling today, I'll stop the motions and I'll be like, look, you guys are doing what we practiced 10 steps ago to be here on your own with nobody guiding you into this position it started standing and now you guys are doing this grounded position just to keep the weapon from the other person yeah so it's this cool uh it's almost like a 3d model where like i'm gonna show you this and then wait for it two hours from now you're gonna see it over here and then tomorrow you're gonna see it at the end of the day all tie itself together for you so it's a nice little package that becomes a part of you um, but but it's done in chunks. It's done in layers, and it's the only way that I found to really make it stick. And every every move has a counter. And that whole belly flat down is a move to retain a gun. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's what nobody sees online is that that position is a moment in time to accomplish the next move. Because I usually cut the edit so that you can't see what's next.
3: Sure. Yeah, I get <laughs> And that's that.
2: all just by, it's all by design. Of course, you know, I of want course. them to experience it on their own. Um, but yeah, I get a ton of information about, oh, dude, that guy's belly down. I'll just step on his head. I'm like, well, and imagine this, right? Cause you, you guys have some sense of, of training. If you're pushing down on somebody that's on the ground, right? You feel that weight that's being driven into them. The moment I go to release to strike, I have to shift the weight away right. from that person. And that's usually the timing that we teach them to make a turn. Or put some sort of leg frames between you and the other person, right. and then start working that gun. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to strike without taking pressure off. So that the idea of why grapplers do better than others is because they're more sensitive to touching and movement and weight distribution and weight shifts.
1: Yes. 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 So before we let you go, I have one final piece to this discussion that I want to go into, and that is the idea of a course of this nature that's very physical. What physical conditioning should students work towards before they arrive right so i mean obviously if you're going to a course next month you're, you're not going to become an, an olympic uh you know jujitsu player you're not going to become a you know a world uh, famous power lifter like that's not going to happen but what what do you recommend people do to get themselves ready and let maybe if they're going like a few months out from a course absolutely
2: and you know what's cool about this question is i'm building a program that uh body weight and then 25% small, um, small equipment pieces. But what I would tell people when I tell them, I just start moving around jogging and running just to get your cardio and your blood flowing. And the impact of running is the same thing as the impact of shadow boxing that you would do if you're moving around. If you're not good at shadow boxing yet, but being light on your toes. So a, a lot of jumping jacks, like I brought it old school, like do jumping jacks, do as many jumping jacks as your calves will allow. (laughs) <laughs> rest and then do it again <laughs> you know um but a, a lot of it this is a huge one so you need ankle strength and calf strength right explosiveness from your feet something that's super underutilized and uh, it's not trained on outside of especially the grappling martial arts they don't do a lot of that explosive Well, wrestling does actually wrestling does more than jujitsu. jitsu jiu-jitsu is like we're kind of more like laying down and doing yeah. stuff Man, to have explosive ankles from jumping rope is a huge benefit.
1: It's hard, um, too. Like, I, I, I got into jumping rope for a while. Like, I really, I do actually enjoy doing it. But, man, it, it is, like, wreaks havoc on your calves and your ankles. It's it's ridiculous how much you, how quickly you burn out from doing that.
2: Yeah. So, jump rope, and then uh, I do a lot of calf, uh, <laughs> like, uh, tip, fib raises and then calf raises that uh, the knees over toes program is phenomenal for people building their, for their ankles and knee strength. Cause you do need that. If you're, if your legs are not strong, you're going to struggle more than if your legs are strong. So body weight squats, uh, good hip hinging, like being able to reach forward and touch your toes. So deadlift, if you're, if you're a lifter, uh, but squats, man, I, I found this awesome clip uh, of talking about squats And squats will just change you as a human being. They'll make you powerful. They'll make you explosive. They'll make you capable of sitting in that third world squat and lifting other people and and being on the ground and immediately finding footing beneath you. Uh, So so to me, what I encourage people to do is cardio, a little bit of cardio. Start off, get your body moving. Shadow boxing, if you can kind of figure it out, you do require a good coach for shadow boxing to make it make sense for you. You're not going to shadow box a 33-hit combo. (laughs) Um, It's not going to give you what you're looking for. But shadow boxing is more about being light on your feet and being able to shift directions, move left, move right, move forward, move back. Uh, Cat strength. Lunges are a masterpiece um, that you can do with zero resistance as far as weights or anything else. Lunges feed into uh, how to shoot for takedowns. So just building your legs. Uh, Legs are a big one. And that's what's going to be in, in, in a lot of that program. But I tell people just bodyweight exercises, get your body to the point of soreness and failure, and then do it again and start getting used to that kind of fatigue. Isometric hold stuff is really good too, because now you're dealing with resistance of another person pushing into you. So your muscles are reacting a little differently than just moving your own body weight uh, around. So a, a little bit of the isometric hold. uh
0: well, I'm I'm interested. I'm interested in that 33 punch combo. If it involves a bag of pretzel combos, sound, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. At the end of
2: it, you get you get the pretzel and cheese combo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. So, listen, Raul, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and and talking about your training methods. I, I not only find your concepts on close contact gunfighting interesting; it's certainly something that is uh, just something that I enjoy doing myself, but. I'm also very impressed with the amount of hard skills that you're able to pack into your courses. You, you definitely offer a lot of bang for your buck. So thank you for being on the show. And to everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to tune into our show. You can find links in the show notes to all of our social media. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Discord so we can keep the conversation going.